1999, two Stanford grads named Larry Page and Sergey Brin had a meeting at Sequoia Capital in Silicon Valley. The purpose of the meeting was to raise funds for Page and Brin's startup, which was called Google. At that time, Google was headquartered above an ice cream parlor in downtown Palo Alto. Google was tiny. And it didn't even have the advantage of being the first internet search engine to come along. John Doerr was one of the investors present at that meeting, and his book, Measure What Matters, describes Google's predicament at that time. He says, as the 18th search engine to arrive on the web, the company was way late to the party. Giving the competition such a long head start was normally fatal, especially in technology. But Larry Page and Sergey Brin weren't troubled by their company's small size or its place at the back of the line of search engines. Here's another quote from John Doerr's book. I asked them, how big do you think this could be? I'd already made my private calculation. If everything broke right, Google might reach a market cap of $1 billion, but I wanted to gauge their dreams. Larry responded, $10 billion. Just to be sure, I said, you mean market cap, right? And Larry shot back, no, I don't mean market cap, I mean revenue. I was floored. Assuming a normal growth rate for a profitable tech firm, $10 billion in revenue would imply a $100 billion market capitalization. That was the province of Microsoft and IBM and Intel. That was a creature rarer than a unicorn. Well, as things turned out, Larry Page underestimated Google's future market capitalization because Google's current market value is $1.8 trillion. Google is utterly dominant in the internet search world. I know a high school teacher whose favorite joke when he needs to look something up on the web during a class is to say to his class, let me see what I can find on Bing. <laughs> of course, the whole class reacts by saying, Bing? What's wrong with Google? Google's rise from tiny beginnings to global ascendancy probably isn't the first story you've heard of a small start leading to very big things. But I wonder if you've noticed in the Bible that God himself often works out his purposes in this world with that same approach. He starts small and patiently waits for that small beginning to develop and develop and develop. Now, God doesn't work like that because of a lack of power or resources. God isn't a Stanford grad in a t-shirt with a cool startup idea but not enough funding. God's the creator of everything. He spoke the universe into existence. And yet this all-powerful God often chooses a start-small-grow-slow approach for working his purposes out. We need to get familiar 
with his way of working so that when we ourselves bump up against it in our own lives, we won't be taken by surprise. If God sometimes or often pursues a start, small, grow, slow approach, we may need to learn to live with that in our own experience. In today's passage, it is as if the writer of Genesis spends some time taking stock. Genesis 21 is like a progress report that evaluates where things have got to. When Abraham arrived in the promised land of Canaan, he was 75 years old. According to Genesis 12, in our passage today, we're told in verse 5 that Abraham is now 100 years old. So 25 years have passed. For 25 years, Abraham has staked his life on three promises from God. A promise of people. God said Abraham would become a great nation. A promise of blessing. God said all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, through that nation descending from him, and a promise of land. When Abraham arrived in Canaan, God said to your offspring, I will give this land. Three promises, people, blessing, and land. 25 years have passed since Abraham received those promises, a quarter of a century. And yet, as we'll see, progress towards fulfillment seems slow. But there are encouraging steps in the right direction. Baby steps, we might say. We're going to look at each promise in turn, beginning with people. People. Please look down with me to verses 1 and 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Someone could easily say that the birth of one child after 25 years doesn't represent good progress towards a nation made up of Abraham's descendants. One child is just one step towards the existence of a nation. One child is the minimum possible progress towards that goal, and it's taken 25 years That looks like slow going, doesn't it? But God doesn't apologize. God doesn't say, sorry for taking so long about this. I'll try to pick up the pace from now on. Instead, if you look at those two verses, you'll see that what they stress is the keeping of God's promise. In the eyes of the Bible, what matters is the fulfillment of God's promise, however long it takes. Three times in those two verses, the writer of Genesis draws attention to the fulfillment of God's promise. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. The Bible emphasizes fulfillment because a slow, small start is still a start. God has been true to his word. Now, this baby boy isn't Abraham's only son, as we can see from verse 9, which talks about the son of Hagar the Egyptian. 
whom she had borne to Abraham. If God had been looking to get Abraham's nation as big as possible, as quickly as possible, it would have made sense for that nation to descend from Ishmael, Hagar's son, instead of Isaac, Sarah's son. Ishmael was already 14 years old when Isaac was born. That gave him a head start. And judging by Genesis chapter 25, it seems that by the time of Abraham's death, Ishmael has already had 12 sons, while Isaac has had the grand total of none, no children. So Ishmael represented the quick route to a big nation, but God makes it unmistakably clear in this passage that his nation promise will be fulfilled through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Take a look at the second half of verse 12, where God says, Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Through Isaac, Sarah's son. Sarah's Isaac was the promised child. Hagar's Ishmael wasn't. Ishmael was born because Abraham and Sarah were looking around for a human solution to Sarah's barrenness instead of trusting in God. That's why they turned to Hagar, a slave woman in their household, using her as a kind of surrogate mother. There's a lot we could say about Abraham and Sarah's treatment of Hagar. And we did say a lot when we were looking at Genesis chapter 16. In brief, we are not expected to approve of it, and there are clear signs back in chapter 16 that God himself didn't approve of it. The point to grasp here in Genesis 21 is that God doesn't divert his promise through Ishmael. It's important to God for the promised nation to descend from the promised child, Isaac. God works to plan, and his plan is set out in his promises. God sticks to his promises, even when doing so seems to human eyes to be slow, small progress. Diverting the plan through Ishmael, which is what Abraham himself actually asked God to do in Genesis 17, that would have been the quicker route to a bigger nation, but God doesn't take that route. He's willing to take the slow road, the narrow road. It's time for us to move on to the next of the three promises, blessing. In Genesis 18, verse 18, God puts the blessing promise like this. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. What progress has been made toward the fulfillment of that blessing promise? Is there any progress to report? From one point of view, the answer to that question is the same as the answer to the previous question about the promised people. With the arrival of Sarah's child, the promised nation is now underway, the nation that will bring blessing to the world. So, Isaac's birth brings us one child closer to that blessing. But that's not the only progress in Genesis 21 towards the fulfillment of the blessing promise. God's gracious dealings with Hagar and Ishmael reveal his 
concern for other nations, his love for other nations. God's dealings with Hagar and Ishmael represent a step towards the blessing of the whole world. At first, the way God treats Hagar and Ishmael does not seem gracious. As we saw earlier, God backs up Sarah when she calls for Hagar and Ishmael to be cast out. The reason why God agrees with Sarah is probably because Ishmael would have represented a rival to Isaac if they had stayed in the same household. Verse 9 says that Ishmael laughs at Isaac at the party thrown by Abraham to celebrate Isaac's weaning. As we all know, laughter isn't always happy and cheerful. Sometimes it's scornful. All the way back in Genesis 12, God had told Abraham that those who curse him or dishonor him will themselves be cursed. We've already seen God putting that pledge into practice in some of the previous chapters. Bless Abraham and you'll be blessed. Curse Abraham and you'll be cursed. There's a protective purpose in that pledge. It was to safeguard the three promises, people, blessing, land, which were all bound up with Abraham. Those promises had to be protected. The scornful laughter of Ishmael teenage Ishmael might seem mild and harmless to us. But just a few Bible chapters later, Esau declares his intention to murder his younger brother Jacob because Jacob represented the line of blessing. Sarah's concerns are understandable. And as we've seen, God himself backs her up in verse 12. It is better if Hagar and Ishmael leave the household. It will protect Isaac, the child of promise, the child of blessing. If we put ourselves in the shoes of the first people who listened to this Bible chapter, they would surely have expected Hagar and Ishmael's story to end at the end of verse 14. Abraham sent them away with water and bread. What more do we need to know? Those, that's what those first listeners would probably have thought to themselves. They were Israelites descended from Abraham through Isaac. The other nations of the world were highly threatening in their eyes. They may have found it hard to accept the idea that their God might truly be concerned about other nations. But that is what we see played out in this passage. The writer of Genesis does not stop telling Hagar and Ishmael's story at the end of verse 14. Please look down with me to verse 15 and I'll read from there. When the water in the skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child, Ishmael, under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard 
the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. God is gracious and generous to Hagar and Ishmael. He deals kindly with them. He reveals a well of water to Hagar so that she can fill the skin and take it to her boy. Imagine her pleasure as she watches him lift the skin to his dry lips and pour the water into his mouth and down his parched throat. Then in verse 20, we're told that God was with the boy as he grew up. God makes sure that Ishmael will become a nation. As he told Hagar, he would. In verse 18, I will make him into a great nation. Now, what will happen to that nation in the future? It will be blessed. It will be blessed because the nation descending from Abraham and Isaac will bring blessing to all nations. That blessing is in the distant future from the perspective of Genesis 21. But God's kindness to Hagar and Ishmael is a tiny seed that shows us he's serious about the future blessing of all nations. Although it may have made the first listeners uncomfortable, this chapter shows God doesn't take the view that the Isaac nation is the only nation that counts and all the other nations can perish of thirst. No. Instead, God provides what Hagar and Ishmael need so that Ishmael can become a nation that will later be blessed. It's a glimpse into God's heart. And once again, it underlines his patience, his willingness to work in slow, small ways. The eternal blessing of God won't be offered to Ishmael's nation until long after Isaac has become a nation. And Isaac in Genesis 21 is still only one or two years old. He's only just been weaned off his mother's milk. But at the right time, the blessing will come. Let's press on to the third of the three promises, land, land. We'll look at this more quickly so that we have plenty of time for application. God had promised Abraham that he would personally receive the whole of the land of Canaan. Listen, for example, to Genesis 17, verse 8, where God says this to Abraham, The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. Genesis 17, verse 8. Here in Genesis 21, Abraham receives the first installment of that promise, a well. Abimelech, a local king who we met in the previous chapter, agrees that, yes, Abraham has been responsible for digging a certain well. And as a result, Abraham receives permission to keep it for himself. The formal nature of their agreement can be seen in verse 31. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. The oath is to do with the fact that Abraham dug the well, 
And by swearing that oath, king of the region, swearing that oath with Abraham, it acts as permission for Abraham to keep that well for himself. Very important in a dry land. In verse 33, we read that Abraham plants a tamarisk tree there in that same place, Beersheba. I'm told a tamarisk tree is a slow-growing tree that provides shade. Planting that tree was an act of confidence on Abraham's part that this patch of land with the well would still be his for years to come. When the tree had finally grown to provide that shade. Once again, the message is clear. God isn't fulfilling his promise to Abraham immediately, all in one go. God is patient. To human eyes, God's patience may look like slowness. But he's not slow for the sake of being slow. He's not slower than he should be. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient. Putting it differently, God has reasons for his timings. What seems slow to us is in fact perfectly timed. And God's patience while he waits calls for patience on Abraham's part while he waits. Genesis 21 shows us that God is prepared to start small and go slow. Slower than we might want. It's so often how he works. So it shouldn't surprise us when Jesus, Abraham's descendant, Isaac's descendant, Jesus, the one who brings God's eternal blessing to all nations, it shouldn't surprise us when Jesus says these words in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Jesus came into the world to be the king of the kingdom of heaven, and he compares that kingdom, his kingdom, to a mustard seed. Tiny. It had to be that small. It had to begin so slowly with just 12 disciples. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells one of those disciples, Peter, that he could call on his father, who would at once send 12 legions of angels. A legion equals 6,000. So Jesus could have called for 72,000 angels to overcome his enemies. Why didn't he? Why didn't he supersize his kingdom at that point? Jesus explains to Peter, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? The scriptures prophesied that God's servant would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The scriptures predicted to bring us peace, he was punished. 
and by his stripes we are healed. In order to bring us peace, Jesus had to be pierced for our transgressions. He had to be arrested, condemned and nailed to a cross. Jesus could have instantly supersized his kingdom, but he didn't. He kept it as small as a mustard seed so that his opponents could easily overpower his supporters and take him away to be crucified. What could look smaller or more insignificant than a man slowly dying on a cross like a criminal? And yet that is how God chose to work. That was the only way salvation, eternal blessing, could be offered to the nations. Jesus had to die in our place, the blameless for the blameworthy, suffering the punishment we deserved so that we could go free. Through his death and resurrection, God's eternal blessing, the blessing of the everlasting God as he is described in verse 33. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, that eternal blessing is offered to all nations. The mustard seed becomes the largest tree in the garden. If there's someone listening to this sermon who hasn't yet perched on that tree, as it were, you haven't yet taken hold of the eternal blessing offered to you through Jesus, you could do that today. Come to him today to receive the blessing God had patiently prepared for centuries. For those of us who are already following Jesus, Genesis 21 should teach us patience. We've seen that the creator God is willing to work in ways that are seemingly slow and small and insignificant. He may answer our prayers quickly and hugely. But if his answers are seemingly slow and small and insignificant, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't think something has gone wrong or that God doesn't love us. Genesis 21 shows us that slow and small is often how God works. While we wait for God's answers, his Holy Spirit will give us the strength we need to be patient. Patience is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Another application for us from Genesis 21 is that we should be willing to follow God's example ourselves if necessary. It's likely that many of your endeavours will need to start small and move forward slowly. That can be true of spiritual endeavours such as a ministry in the church. It can also be true of business endeavours or practical work around the home. But if God is willing to put his purposes into effect in this seed-like way, we should be willing too. Those of us who are parents or parents-to-be need to hear this message. The aim of parenting, according to Malachi 2.15, is to produce godly offspring. That's the aim we, we keep before us, seeking God's help to raise godly offspring. In practice, 
that will mean years of slow progress with a very small person. Spoon feeding, diaper changing, board book reading, day after day after day. For parents, perhaps especially stay-at-home parents, it can seem as if the world is rushing past, building things, making things, doing great things. It can seem as if the world is rushing past while you're stuck in slow motion. But Genesis 21 shows us God is sometimes willing himself to act in this slow motion way. A final application for us is to persevere if it feels like you're only making very slow progress in character change, character transformation in a particular way. The Christian counsellor David Polison, I hope I'm saying his name right, has said, people often change slowly and struggle deeply. He's talking about Christians. People often change slowly and struggle deeply. When it comes to character development, it's rare for Christians to change in big, dramatic, speedy ways. All things are possible with God. But it seems the norm for real Christians wanting to become more mature, more Christ-like, it seems the norm is to change slowly and struggle deeply. Just as Abraham was thrilled with his well and his tamarisk tree, thrilled with that first instalment of the land. In the same way, it's often a good plan to focus on small, definite steps forward and to celebrate those small steps forward in character change when they come. Let's finish with verse 6, a very encouraging verse. Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You might remember that in Genesis 18, Sarah got into trouble with God for laughing scornfully when she overheard God promise to Abraham that he and Sarah would have a child in their old age. Here in verse 6, her laughter is the happy kind. It's the cheerful laughter of fulfillment, the laughter of the promise delivered. Now that, Cheerful, happy laughter will be ours forever in the world to come. But through God's grace, we can have a measure of that happy laughter in this life too, because the promise has been delivered. Isaac's descendant, Jesus, was, after many centuries, born as promised. He died as promised, and he rose from the dead as promised. And we have eternal blessing through him. Let's bow our heads to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and pray that you would help us to learn from you, from your ways. We pray that we would share your patience. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us that fruit of patience in our lives. Make us willing, we pray, if necessary, to persevere with what is slow in our lives and small, trusting in you, learning from you and your ways.
We praise you, Father, and thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus, came as promised at the right time. We praise you for the eternal blessing that we have through him. Amen.